What's new in science this week? What's new in science this week? Bench Talk, the week in science. Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. Bench Talk, the, the week, week in, in science. science. Dave Robinson here telling you that there are some important things happening this week. For instance, there's a partial lunar eclipse happening this Thursday night, November 18th, 2021. Well, technically it's Friday morning. But here's Professor Scott Miller of Maysville Community and Technical College to tell us more about it. Eclipses can evoke awe and, in some cases, fear. The latter comes mostly from misinformation, the former because something is different from normal. Even today, notice of an eclipse, whether a solar eclipse or a lunar eclipse, can find its way in the local or national news as well as social media. So it might be a good to distinguish between them for the opportunity of maximum enjoyment. Often when the word eclipse is used, people think of a solar eclipse. During a solar eclipse, the amount of daylight is reduced as the moon moves in its orbit around us over the face of the sun. In many instances, one might only experience a partial solar eclipse as the moon, from our perspective, either passes above or below the center line. But for those lucky enough to live in the path of the solar eclipse, the experience can be quite awe-inspiring. Safe viewing with unaided eye away from the eclipsed sun can, for a brief time, expose any of the naked eye planets that might be above the horizon at the time. I recall during the solar eclipse back in 2017 being able to see Venus and Jupiter, for example, at the point of totality. As the moon drew nearer to the sun, I even noticed a shadow coming toward the location where I and others had picked to view the eclipse. A glimpse to the ground around some trees nearby showed small versions of the partial phases multiplied on the ground. All in all, a bit surreal. There is much caution emphasized when viewing a solar eclipse because even a small amount of sunlight sneaking around the edge of the moon can be enough to cause temporary or even permanent eye damage. So it is often strongly suggested that eye protection be worn during that time leading up to and following the total eclipse phase. At the opposite extreme, observationally, we have a lunar eclipse. In this case, the moon in its orbit around Earth moves into the Earth's shadow. As the moon begins to enter the darker part of the Earth's shadow, one can see a dark path working its way across what would otherwise be a full moon. In the case of a total lunar eclipse, all of the moon works its way into the Earth's shadow and, rather than completely disappearing, as can be anticipated by the dark shadow moving over the face of the moon, the moon can instead become a reddish hue, the depth of redness determined by how deeply into the Earth's shadow the moon passes. Whereas special eye protection is necessary to watch a solar eclipse, a lunar eclipse is not dangerous to the eye, though staring at a full moon for extended periods of time is probably not a good idea. But since the full moon is being dimmed, there's no real danger to the eye. Another major difference between the two is time. At its longest, a solar eclipse may be around 7 minutes in length. That is, the time when the sun is completely blocked by the moon can be 7 minutes and often less in total time. On the other hand, it may take as much as an hour and 40 minutes or less for the moon to move through the Earth's shadow. That is how big the Earth's shadow is at the distance of the moon from us. What this also means is that it is far more likely someone can see a lunar eclipse compared to a solar eclipse. 
one only needs to be on the night side of the earth with the sun in the sky as it begins to enter and eventually leave the earth's shadow that's much easier than finding out where the moon's shadow will travel along the surface of the earth and in order to be in the right place at the right time to see a full solar eclipse. Eclipses are rare because the orbital circumstances necessary to create them. The moon's orbit is tipped with respect to ours by about 5 degrees. As the sun and the moon both coincidentally span about half a degree in the sky, it is only at times when the intersection line of the earth and moon's orbits point generally toward the sun that an eclipse is possible. Otherwise, we simply experience new moon or full moon phases as the moon would be passing above or below the disk of the sun or above or below the shadow of the earth. But when the circumstances are ripe, it is possible to have a solar eclipse and a lunar eclipse happen in about a two weeks period of time. It may be one or the other that it happens first, and it is also possible that only one or the other will be seen. Such is the circumstances of the motion of the moon around us and our motion around the sun, and the direction of the line of intersection points when the moon arrives at either of those nodes. On November 19th, beginning around 1 a.m., the outer layer of the Earth's shadow, the penumbra, will first contact the moon. That is, the moon, in its orbit, reaches Earth's penumbra. Not much is noticeable initially because sunlight is still falling on the moon's surface. The more interesting point begins around 2.20 a.m., when the moon reaches the umbra, the darker portion of the Earth's shadow. For a bit more than an hour and a half, one can see the moon progress deeper and deeper into the shadow. But this is called a partial eclipse because not all of the moon enters the shadow this time. At about 4.03 a.m., there will still remain a thin sliver of sunlight on the moon. From this point, the moon will appear to leave the shadow of the Earth behind, all the while working its way over toward the western horizon. It will completely leave the umbra by 5.47 a.m. and the penumbra, marking the end of this eclipse event, by 7.03, while still about 5 degrees above the western horizon. By that time, the sun will be getting close to rising. As you can see, this is an all-night, make that an early morning event. If chilly enough, you and others you may have encouraged to join you will have time to watch for a bit, go inside to warm up, perhaps getting coffee or hot chocolate in you, then going back out to see the progress. Lunar eclipses are leisure events. Take your time and enjoy, weather permitting. Thanks, Scott. And again, that partial lunar eclipse is happening in Louisville between 1 and 7 a.m., this Friday morning, November 19th, 2021. Watch that one as our next lunar eclipses are in May and November of 2022. And our next solar eclipse, and it'll be only a partial eclipse, that's in October of 2023. Next is Dr. Leslie Moise reporting on some recent research about the strong correlation found between people holding homophobic beliefs and their IQ. Take it away, Leslie. Hello, this is Leslie Moise, and I have a story to share about the connection between a low IQ and homophobia. Recently, researchers at the University of Queensland in Australia have discovered connections between people with lower IQs and expressions of prejudice, especially against LBGTQ people. 
Researchers tested the cognitive abilities of subjects to problem-solving, making sound judgments, and even verbal and mathematical abilities. The researchers then compared the results with questions on subjects' attitudes to LBGTQ rights. Now, to use a person's IQ as a foundation for a display of homophobia is not accurate, they discovered. However, a low IQ is linked to homophobia. People with lower IQs tend to be less likely to get involved and talk with someone whose ideas might change their mind or their way of thinking. They resist connecting with that kind of person. This study was published in the scientific journal Intelligence, and the researchers conveyed that the parallels between a low IQ and bigotry are widely understood. For example, people who believe in conversion therapy are often founded in an unscientific mindset. So additional research needs to be done, the researchers discovered, in order for there to be a better understanding of prejudice. Thanks for that important update, Leslie. Now, here's a couple stories from the University of Texas at Austin about the science behind a beautiful event happening right before our eyes this month. Take it away, Earth Date. From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. What makes leaves change colors so dramatically in the fall? Three things. Leaf pigments, the weather, and the length of the day is called the photo period. To protect themselves from freezing, broadleaf trees in temperate areas must harvest the sugar from their leaves for the winter. This starts when shorter days signal trees to slow the production of chlorophyll. As photosynthesis uses up the remaining green chlorophyll, yellow pigments that are always present in the leaves show through. Mild sunny fall days will rapidly process the chlorophyll and leave bright golds, while rainy or hot days will make for more muted colors. Cooler nights soon trigger the production of red and purple pigments, which are thought to act as a sunscreen, further slowing photosynthesis. These red colors are more abundant in healthier plants and may serve to warn insects away toward weaker plants. Eventually, the last sugars are drawn from the leaves and into the branches, trunk, and roots of the tree for storage during the winter. Cells form at the base of the leaf, making it more likely to fall off, and at the twig end, like a scab, sealing the twig off from outside elements. Only the vascular bundles connected to the veins of the leaf hold it to the tree. When the leaf finally falls, its remaining nutrients are recycled into the soil to be used by the tree for future growth. Meanwhile, the bundle scar left on each twig becomes a bud for a new leaf in the spring, when the tree will use its stored energy to grow a new crown. To make it through winter, trees have developed two very different strategies. Deciduous trees, whose broad leaves are too delicate to survive the freeze, pull their sugars back into the body of the tree and let their leaves die and fall, as we explored in a previous Earth Day. Coniferous trees, like pine, spruce, fir, and cedar, have a few different solutions. First, their leaves are actually needles, adapted to the cold. They're thick, have less surface area, and are coated with a waxy substance called cutin, which traps moisture within them. So that the needles are not damaged by freezing, as cold weather approaches, water within their cells moves to spaces between the cells and concentrates with sugar to lower its freezing point. The whole tree, in fact, produces a protein that acts like antifreeze, binding ice crystals and causing them to form less damaging hexagonal shapes instead of their traditional needle form. 
This system works so well that evergreen needles can stay on trees through several winters. They fall off only due to age and are quickly replaced by new needles. By retaining their leaves, evergreen trees also retain their nutrients. Preserving their nitrogen, potassium, phosphorus, calcium, and magnesium allows them to survive in extreme environments, like high mountain soils that may have little of these minerals. And staying green throughout the late fall and early spring allows them to conduct photosynthesis and produce sugars when deciduous trees can't. I'm Scott Tinker. Thanks to all the folks at UT Austin for that. And finally this week, diabetes. Did you know that November is National Diabetes Month? Well, we're pleased to present to you right now Dr. Eliana Probescu of the University of Kentucky Diabetes Research Center. She'll be discussing the science behind the links between diabetes and COVID-19. So here's Dr. Popescu. Hello, everyone. I am Dr. Juliana Popescu. I am a scientist working in diabetes research for more than 15 years. As many of you probably don't know, November is National Diabetes Month in the United States. And at a global level, November 14 is World Diabetes Day the world's largest diabetes awareness campaign created in 1991 by the World Health Organization and the International Diabetes Federation. The fourth day of November was chosen in the honor of Dr. Frederick Banting, the co-discoverer of insulin, who was born on November 14, 1891. In this context, and because the scientific world has been challenged by the COVID-19 crisis as never before, I decided to talk to you about the link between COVID-19, diabetes, and obesity. Well, I'll be trying to reveal to you several intriguing discoveries about the SARS-CoV-2 virus at the intersection with the metabolic diseases, while we'll explore the topic starting from two questions. How diabetes worsens the COVID-19 outcomes, and if COVID-19 can induce diabetes. Well, I'm sure that each of you knows at least one person who has diabetes. It may be a friend, a member of your family, a colleague, or just acquaintances. Well, diabetes can affect everyone, regardless of age, social status, ethnicity, race, or gender. The term diabetes may seem unknown to you, but it's very common throughout scientists. It indicates the coexistence of both diabetes and obesity within the same individual. Diabetes was designated by the distinguished professor Paul Zimmet, director of the International Diabetes Institute in Melbourne, Australia in 2007, as the biggest epidemic of human history, the epidemic of the modern world, because of the outgoing combined burden of obesity and diabetes. Today, according to the newest data published by the International Diabetes Federation, 537 million adults are living with diabetes. This number is predicted to rise to 643 million by 2030 and nearly 800 million by 2045. Among the U.S. population overall, 13% of all U.S. adults had diabetes in 2018. Of those adults diagnosed with diabetes, almost 90% were overweight or had obesity, according to the last CDC report. According to the Behavior Risk Factor Surveillance Systems, the prevalence of obesity in the Kentuckian population is 36.6% as self-reported obesity. 
while of concern is also the increased prevalence of obesity in children and adolescents, along with the incidence of type 2 diabetes in these populations, which is estimated to increase by almost 50% by 2050. The presence of obesity in childhood or adolescence is associated with a more rapid progression of diabetes-related complications and with a higher-end premature mortality in adult life. In addition, being a chronic disease, diabetes poses a significant economic impact on countries and health systems. As you all know, diabetes is associated with a rapid progression of diabetes-related complications such as cardiovascular diseases like atherosclerosis, heart failure, stroke, also kidney failure, blindness, Alzheimer's disease, and also cancer, especially in older people. Because of metabolic dysregulation to which a cluster of cardiorenal complications can be added, infections of any kind, including COVID-19, can be potentially dangerous or even fatal in people with diabetes and obesity, especially in older individuals over 65, those with other underlying health conditions, or if diabetes is poorly controlled. Well, patients with COVID-19 infections and suffering from diabetes, associated or not with obesity, have a higher rate of hospitalization. This is not because people with diabetes can catch COVID-19 easier than those without diabetes, but because the evolution of the infection is worse in these individuals and predispose them to multiple complications. Obesity may triple the risk of hospitalizations due to COVID-19 in adults and children as well. The risk of, for hospitalization or death is particularly pronounced in obese people under age 65. Hispanic and non-Hispanic Black adults, because they have a higher prevalence of obesity, are more likely to suffer worse outcomes from COVID-19. Now, let's overview several mechanisms explaining why diabetes conditions, diabetes and obesity, worse the COVID-19 outcomes. Well, the first culprit is glucose, better said, the high amount of this sugar in the blood. Sugar glucose can modulate the immune system by a couple of mechanisms. First, high glucose alters the movement of the immune cells in the lymph and organs and also influences their ability to kill the virus. Secondly, high glucose decreases the utilization of oxygen by the immune cells, which impairs them from functioning at their optimal capacity. Also, glucose can bind to the surface of antibodies produced by our body and reduces their functionality so they will not be able to protect us. Elevated glucose can serve as a culture media for the virus, making it replicate and spread rapidly, mainly in the lungs, where a large quantity of virus arrives. Additionally, the blood vessels in the lungs of diabetic patients are modified also due to high levels of glucose. Also, people with diabetes and obesity display an increased risk of pulmonary fibrosis, a chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder, and their respiratory capacity is reduced. The second culprit, the baseline pro-inflammatory state. People with diabetes or prediabetes who are overweight or obese have a long-standing higher blood glucose levels and a chronic pro-inflammatory state in their tissues. Inflammatory molecules 
like the cytokines IL-6, IL-1-beta, or TNF-alpha are already produced by immune cells that infiltrate the excessive fat tissues, which becomes insensitive to insulin. As excessive fat is deposited within other metabolic organs, such as skeletal muscle, the liver, and the pancreas, but also the blood vessels, these organs, at their turn, also become insensitive to insulin. We say that they acquire insulin resistance, so that they can't uptake and use glucose anymore. If infection with SARS-CoV-2 virus occurs, this may amplify this inflammatory state already existent in these individuals and exacerbate it. The cytokine storm causes a superinflammation that appears to be triving the multi-organ failure seen in COVID-19. As SARS-CoV-2 infection touches a lot of the endothelial tissue, the tissue paving the walls of the blood vessels, and because this endothelial tissue is extremely fragile in persons with type 2 diabetes, the explanation for the toxic combination between COVID-19 and diabetes is by far evident. Well, in people suffering from diabetes, their immune cells, the T cells, have already a lower ability to perform their duty, that is to attack and kill the virus to protect us against the infection. These killer cells are helped in their fight against the virus by other subsets of cells called helper cells. Well, it seems that these helper cells can be infected themselves by the virus and die, so they cannot any longer help the main immune cells to fight against the infection. More than that, their death induces more inflammation, resulting again in a cytokine storm. Now the third culprit, the AC2 receptor. The main entry gate of SARS-CoV-2 virus in our cells is through the AC2 receptor, a protein preponderantly stuck in the membrane of many types of cells, including those in the nose, lungs, blood vessels, heart, gut, and liver. AC2 receptor grabs the spike proteins of the virus, pulling the virus down inside the cell. Scientists suspected initially that the AC2 receptor has a higher presence in the organs of people with diabetes, which would explain the more severe outcomes of COVID-19 in this category of patients. But the evidence is still contradictory. However, it was observed that the expression of this receptor is increased by inflammatory stress. So the pro-inflammatory state as that found in obesity and type 2 diabetes can increase the chances that the virus binds more to the cells. Also, it's possible that certain medications frequently taken by individuals with diabetes may increase or on contrary impair the entry of the virus in the cells. Then it was hypothesized that when the virus binds to the AC2 receptor, it enters the cells of the host and pulls down the AC2 receptor at the same time, so less AC2 receptor will remain at the surface of the host cells. This would induce a disequilibrium in the very important regulatory system of our body, called the RAS system, renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. This will trigger more inflammation, constriction of the blood vessels, fibrosis, insulin resistance, and less insulin production by the pancreas. 
This will aggravate the clinical features of people with metabolic disturbances and obesity, who also display comorbidities like hypertension, chronic pulmonary obstruction, cardiac, and renal dysfunctions. Well, the mechanism of SARS-CoV-2 infection in the context of diabetes are not that simple. Also, an enzyme necessary for the virus to infect the cells seems to have higher levels in patients with diabetes. Also, persons with diabetes and a certain immune signature linked to monocytes are more likely to develop a severe form of COVID-19. Monocytes, by the way, are the precursors of macrophages, and they are a type of white blood cells that are in the front line of the attack upon the virus. But whether the mechanisms involved are, one thing is sure, people with diabetes who are infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus have an overall greater risk of developing severe symptoms and more complications of the COVID-19. According to the American Diabetes Association, COVID-19 increases twofold the risk of dying in a person with diabetes. And remember, almost 25% of the U.S. deaths related to COVID-19 have been people living with diabetes. Well, it is not just diabetes that is making COVID-19 more severe and even deadly. It's also possible that COVID-19 is making diabetes worse or even causing new-onset diabetes. It is already known that several viruses, like the Coxsackie virus, can induce type 1 diabetes, which, unlikely type 2 diabetes, is the autoimmune destruction of the insulin-secreting cells, the beta cells. A study conducted in France found newly diagnosed diabetes in 2.8% of patients hospitalized for COVID-19. This percent was almost double in a small Italian study, while a study in Belgium reported 7% of COVID patients developing diabetes. However, large epidemiological studies do not support until now an increased incidence of type 1 diabetes during the pandemic, but this needs continued surveillance. One aspect to consider is also that treatment for hospitalized patients with COVID-19, and here I'm referring, for instance, to the corticoid therapy given to COVID in patients, which is known to impair insulin secretion, produce hyperglycemia, and insulin resistance. Well, it was suggested that SARS-CoV-2 virus and other coronaviruses might specifically damage the pancreatic islets potentially leading to hyperglycemia and diabetes. However, the presence of the AC2 receptor in the beta cells was found by several studies, while others did not. This apparent discrepancy between studies can be explained by natural differences between human individuals. Some have more receptors expressed on their cells, others don't. To date, it is not clear whether the virus can directly damage beta cells or whether other indirect mechanisms are involved. The data we have at this moment is not enough to support the hypothesis that COVID-19 infections induces diabetes, so more studies are needed. To do so, an international research team has created a database to collect data and track new diabetes diagnosis after COVID-19 infections. The database, called COVID-Diab, 
already collected 320 cases around the world. Well, understanding how COVID-19 relates to diabetes will shed light on the mechanism behind two distinct medical conditions. At first glance, without interference, but with so many intersections, as the medical practice has shown in these challenging COVID years. Thank you to Dr. Iuliana Probescu of the UK Diabetes Research Center for this fascinating report. I have to admit I hadn't really understood why or how vulnerable diabetes patients were to COVID-19 before now. Well, this half hour has sort of run out of show. You've been listening to Bench Talk the Weekend Science, broadcast from 106.5 FM here in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you and see you next week.